You're a busy provider trying to stay current with the latest HIV testing, prevention, and treatment guidelines, and your pockets are overflowing with note cards. You need a convenient, trustworthy source for HIV testing, treatment, prevention, and care protocols. All healthcare professionals have a role in stopping HIV. Introducing HIV Care Tools from the AIDS Education and Training Center program. The HIV Care Tools mobile app is simple, free, and fully functional offline or online. It features quick guides for HIV prevention, screening, testing, diagnosis, and treatment. HIV Care Tools provides common clinical calculators used in HIV management and provide validated screening tools for comorbidities such as depression, substance use disorders, and PTSD. And if you need clinician-to-clinician consultation, HIV Care Tools provides one-touch access to free clinical consultation services by a multidisciplinary team of experts. Take us with you. Download HIV Care Tools today. Welcome to Nika in the Know, a podcast for healthcare providers in the HIV field. I'm Mariana Breitman. Today, I'm sitting down with Don Farragon to talk about the latest COVID-19 variant and the most recent updates to the NIH guidelines regarding the pandemic. Welcome again, John. Yeah, thanks, Mariana. Um, today, I thought we would just um, cover some of the brief COVID um, guideline updates. You know, you know, some um, there's a lot of information that's relatively new about some of the circulating variants and and the guidelines as a result have been updated. So I thought we would cover that today. So, John, first and foremost, what is the most common variant currently circulating in our region? Yeah. So what? First of all, to, to find this out, there, there's a there's a great CDC website that actually tracks all this, and you can go on the CDC if you search CDC and you know variants, um, you, you'll find the website that has all this track. But um, we're we're known as Region Two, um, in which includes New York, New Jersey, Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands, and I'm pretty sure it actually mirrors the, exactly what the HRSA regions are too. So I think it's really helpful when you're trying to think about what we do as as an ATC and and what the region looks like. Um, but the variant, this XBB 1.5, 1.5, is basically um, over 90% based upon some of the data from the middle of February. So, um, you know, we're recording this today kind of towards the end of February, but again, it's it's going to be, uh, it, you know, you have to go look, but I, I doubt it's probably not going to change that much in two weeks. But the XBB has been, this variant has been rapidly spreading in the United States for the past few months and really has become the dominant variant um, in the U.S., but especially in our region, in Region 2. I think it's actually the highest in the country is, is um, XBB 1.5 in our region, in Region 2. Just a couple comments. You know, we talk about these variants all the time, and what I want to just impart to all of you is that despite all the variants that are going on out there, the, the most thing that's important is for us to know how is what's happening with transmission. So what's trans, how, how is SARS-CoV-2 being transmitted with this variant? And this appears to be more widespread. Um, although to date, it seems like the severity disease does not appear to be affected to date. So if you remember about a year ago, from this point, we had um, we had Delta, and Delta really there was a huge uptake in uh, uptick in, in the number of uh, number of infections and number of people in the hospital. Uh, we were averaging, uh, you know, for a 700 bed hospital, we had about 100 to 120 patients uh, in in uh, a year ago. But now this is really kind of not not has not been the case with. With, with this XBB 1.5, which is good. Um, but this XBB family of variants really emerged a few months ago. Uh, and it also contains more mutations that can evade the immunity of um, immunity than any other variant. So 
the period of infectiousness that we talk about for XBB 1.5 is similar uh, to that of some of the other Omicron variants. So 1.5, XBB 1.5 is actually a derivative of the Omicron variants. It's still part of that lineage. And those have been circulating over the past year. So the, the big changes is, is for treatment. And I think um, many of us probably are aware of this, but all the monoclonal antibodies, even most recently Bev, uh, Bevtilevimab, which, is, which had been uh, available um, since late November, has been removed from the guide on, guidelines from, for use uh, since they are not effective against this variant. In fact, Mariana, the, actually the EUA, which is the emergency use authorization, was actually rescinded by the FDA. So that's a big move them to do, but they realized that this beptilivimab is not working against this XBB variant and most of the Omicron variants as well. So why, you know, why bother having it on board if it's not working? Um, medications such as um, the the uh, the the small molecule oral medications and in one IV drug as well, um, ritonavir boosted nirmatilivir, which we've talked about in extensively, uh, remdesivir, and also molnupiravir are still being used and are expected to continue to remain effective for, for treatment. So uh, these are still working well, particularly in the elderly. So if you look at some of the studies that have come out, if you're 65 and older and have any comorbidities, the, especially for ritonavir for, uh, boosted dermatomyelitis, the data is very good for those, for those patients. Um, and also there's a small study in the, even, even immunocompromised patients using molnupiravir, which looks very, very good. Um, so while one could argue that it's not being prescribed as frequently as it should, and I don't think it is because I think there's a lot of availability of these drugs and people are probably hesitant, maybe hesitant to use them. Um, uh, they are still out there for the vast majority of people. So I, I would encourage you, if you are somebody who has COVID, uh, who gets diagnosed, uh, despite the drug interactions, this ritonavir-boosted nermatilvir is really still our main option for outpatient management for COVID-19. So if you are one to get COVID or somebody in your family or it's you in particular, uh, be sure to ask your provider about it. You know, they, they have, um, uh, if you can't find these meds for, for some reason, there's actually a locator website, which helps you look for it. So if, if you do COVID-19-therapeutics-locator, so it's basically a, a, a website, but if you do COVID-19-therapeutics-locator and Google it, it'll come up and buy on this website, you can actually search by zip code to see if either the ritonavir boosted nermatilvir or the molnupiravir is there. And they also have renal dose adjustments for some of them um, and whether or not that's available. It's very helpful. I will say this, the one thing that's not there is um, a way to kind of know if there's remdesivir doses. So sometimes people may not actually be candidates for ritonavir boosted nermatilvir either because of drug interactions and concerns from the provider, and they may just want to use um, the remdesivir three days infusion, but you have to go to an infusion center for that. So you have to be close to a center that offers it. So for, for me, for an Albany, you know, we have availability in a couple of different hospitals where we can actually do that uh, in our, in our, in our outpatient infusion center. So that's helpful too. But this, this, this site um, is very helpful for at least the oral therapies for, for patients and providers. John, how do we keep track of the different variants circulating around and, you know, constantly emerging? Yeah, so this is actually a great question, and it's something that we I think we addressed very, very early on with um, with variants when some of the original variants have emerged with some of the spike protein changes. That's another thing too. I didn't say in the last section either, Mariana. It's just that for most, for, just so everybody knows, the, the 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 change that changes that are occurring in these viruses are really on the spike protein. That's it's the spike protein changes that change the ability of the of the monoclonals to work. It, it's what Changes the um, um, the way the virus enters into the into the into the uh, uh, into into some of the receptors that that are involved with uh, with with COVID. 
But um, these sequences are, are actually submitted across the world by different labs. And, and so from, from what I understand, some of this reporting has actually slowed down in recent months. And I think with with the availability of vaccinations, availability of effective treatments, I think there is kind of this um, kind of, I don't want to say less of a concern, but there's less, you know, uh, these these used to be submitted a lot more frequently by a lot more labs and a lot more samples. But now, if you look at the number of samples, the lab submitting uh, this is less and less. And from what I read from the World Health Organization, just for surveillance, there's just um, only about 5,200 um, of XBB 1.5 sequences have been reported. And that's between October of last year and January 11th. And it's from 38 countries, but just over 80% of them are from the United States. And the UK is 8, 8%, and then Denmark is 2.2%. So you can get the sense that, you know, we're submitting a lot of them in the US, but in other countries, it's not, it's not as, I don't want to say it's not as important, but I don't think it's a, it's a priority for among some of the other countries that are reporting these sequences. So, so whatever we see, the important piece is that it's probably a, a vast underestimate here and what's happening in other countries. So like, for example, World Health Organization also reports that this XBB is one of the most immune evasive variants to date. And while so far there's no evidence that illness involving this subvariant is more severe. So that's actually helpful. Um, and it doesn't carry mutations that are known to increase severity, but it's still really a concern, I think, for here for transmission. And just remember, too, that um, if if you were one of the patients or one of the, the, the people who actually received the bivalent booster, just know that half of that booster is the original strain. Um, and uh, we they term that the, the Wuhan wild type, which is where we believe that um, the, the, the original strain, you know, originated, uh, you know, from at least the initial disease state from uh, from COVID, uh, SARS-CoV-2. And then there's there was half of it is also this this the Omicron variant, um, the BA 4.5, which is a, which is part of the lineage of XBB 1.5. It's not exactly the same thing, but it, but it's close. So just remember the vaccination with the bivalent booster really st still should provide some level of protection. There is some data that we actually reviewed at the the ATC a few weeks ago that shows that it might be less effective. But recall that this bivalent booster covers both of those strains, covers both the the, the Omicron and also covers um, covers the, the original COVID-19 strain because 50% of both viruses, um, you know, for, um, for, for to, to mount that antibody response. So you should be getting antibodies to the original strain and Omicron, which hopefully should, should provide uh, provide some level of protection. But again, it is, if you do look in some of the early studies so far, it does show that the, even with the, this, this new vaccine, the bivalent, there is a little bit of a reduction in, in efficacy for, uh, for protection, but still probably adequate for the vast majority of people. Can you talk a little bit about the NIH guidelines and whether there have been any recent updates in regard to the COVID-19 pandemic and all these different variants? Yeah, so, so this is probably the most important piece. What does it all mean, right? So the one key data update from late January is directly related to the variants that are circulating in the U.S. And uh, and since um, these Omicron subvariants, including this XBB 1.5, they're not susceptible to um, to this is uh, to the to the prep COVID drug that we talk about, which is called Tixagevimab plus um, Silgavimab. So this is the Evusheld. So this is no longer authorized for use as pre-exposure prophylaxis in the United States. So the so the EUA has been taken away, and also the guidelines don't recommend this anymore. So now we um, the guidelines just in the last few weeks have recommended against the use of of this combination for prep for COVID nineteen. Now remember that was an important piece for us because 
if you had patients, especially if they had a, a, a vaccine reaction or some people may have been absolutely against vaccination, but they would take this, um, this PrEP um, monoclonal, dual monoclonal antibody. That was at least something we could provide for protection. It's also helpful for people who we were pretty sure probably didn't mount a great response to um, uh, to the to the vaccines, for example, maybe potentially an immunocompromised patient, maybe a, a, um, a, a transplant patient, for example, we may have been using this uh, this combination for those patients, but that's no longer available. Um, in addition, the guidelines also made some changes to the IL-1 inhibitor. This is uh, Anna Kinra. So we um, a lot of the rheumatology people use this for certain disease states, um, but we uh, now we have some. Um, we have used more of this in the beginning, but they updated this section to include data from the what's called the Save More trial, where the anakinra did have some benefit in some patients uh, compared to those receiving placebo. So you may potentially see anakinra, especially on the inpatient side for COVID. But again, it's going to depend on your local guidelines and, and whether or not you know providers really are wowed with the Save More trial. I think this is really going to be the point. The FDA also developed a scoring system that you can look at to help determine if the patient might be eligible for anakinra. Uh, it's too much to kind of cover today, but the, guideline can, the guidelines continue to note that there's insufficient evidence to really recommend for or against anakinra for COVID-19, but you may find providers in certain areas that may, may be willing to use it. Um, and the data from the randomized trials really have not consistently demonstrated a benefit that kind of been hit and miss in patients with COVID-19. So you know, in relation to this um, to the scoring system that was developed by the FDA, um, the the NIH guidelines actually discuss really that the, the system, the scoring system really hasn't been validated. So I think it requires further validation to even kind of determine what patients should receive it. So even though the FDA may say one thing, sometimes the guidelines and the, the experts on those panels may actually have some differing opinions. And I think it's an interesting place where this kind of happens with this anakinra. But nonetheless, the guidelines are really helpful. I think they're updated on a regular basis. And I encourage you to take a look at them if you're doing inpatient care. The outpatient management hasn't changed that much except for bevtilevimab is now gone, which we can't get it anyways. And then also the, the, the Evusheld is now gone. As we begin to wrap up, what else do providers need to know today? Yes, just a couple things. Um, just recently, the White House announced that the, it's the intent to uh, extend both the COVID, the national emergency and the COVID-19 public health emergency declarations through May 11th. So I think, um, uh, and that's going to end both of those emergency de declarations on the date. No one really knows what this means. It's not entirely clear, but I just want to make, make sure people are aware you know, for COVID-19 vaccines and booster paint boosters um, and reimbursement, you know, some of the COVID-19 testing issues may actually be changed. Um, coverage for vaccines may be different. So just encourage you to make sure you you, you know that, um, you know, if you have insurance, you're probably going to be fine. But it, the, I worry about the uninsured, uh, obviously, and I worry about those patients who who may actually have Medicare and what's going to be covered. My assumption at all of this will kind of be covered. Um, but, you know, we've got, we've been getting free COVID-19 testing. I mean, you can, you can, Go on a website and sign up and get the tests. I've done this myself. Um, a lot of the coverage for COVID-19 therapeutics have been covered. And the question is, what's going to happen after May 11th? Like, we're going to have to really figure that out. And I think the other piece that's really important, Mariana, is the telehealth services. So, you know, um, there, there was a um, telehealth service was really key, I think, to getting us through this pandemic and being able to provide those services. And I don't know what that's going to mean for um, for those services moving forward. And even the 20%, there was a Medicare premium increase for Medicare reimbursement for COVID patients. And I don't know what that's going to look like either. So some of this may actually be in the process of being worked out, but just be, be aware of it, uh, be on top of it, especially if you're a provider dealing with patients who 
um, who may not have insurance or may be undocumented, for example, what does that mean for those patients and what services will they be able to get around COVID-19 once these authorizations and declarations are actually gone? So really have to stay up to date on how this is going to affect your area as you continue to manage the persons with, with COVID-19. John, thanks so much for joining us and telling us all about the latest with the ever-changing COVID-19 pandemic. We really hope you learned something new today. To learn more about NECA AETC's work and our role in ending the HIV epidemic, visit us at www.necaatc.org. That's www.necaatc.org. If you have questions or comments about anything we covered today, or if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us talk about, don't hesitate to email us at podcast at necaatc.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at necaatc.org. Stay safe, and we'll see you on Thursday for our next episode of Nika in the Know. This presentation is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.